It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. You are listening to On the Daily, the Rotoviz Daily Fantasy Sports Podcast, powered by Rotoviz Radio. Hey everyone, I'm Matt Friedman, Matt the Oracle of the Action Network and Rotoviz. Welcome to the August 31st, 2018 NASCAR edition of On the Daily. I'm joined by Dr. Nick Giffen, an owner of Rotoviz, a PhD in mathematics, a three time qualifier for the DraftKings NASCAR main event, and one of the best NASCAR DFS players in the world. You can follow him on Twitter at Rotodoc. Nick, how's it going? Hey, Matt. Um, I'm doing great. Nice, refreshing weekend off. Uh, if you guys have been following me on Twitter, you know I'm on a bit of a staycation here in Las Vegas. So uh, the wife has 11 days off and I have all of that time off as well, except, uh, of course, preparing and, and doing all the content for Darlington this weekend. But I've definitely been enjoying the time off with my wife. We went went to the strip for a couple days. Uh, we had fellow Fantasy NASCAR DFS, uh, I guess, player and content provider, uh, Jordan McAbee, who's, uh, if you know him online, as at Fan Racing Online. Uh, really good guy. He was out here in Vegas, and uh, so I got to meet up with him. Got to see another friend from back in North Carolina who was out here for a work trip. Went to the Strip, like I said. We went to downtown, uh, which is like Fremont Street area. My wife and I, then we had a couple days at home where we just grilled out. Uh, then we went to the Red Rock Casino for two nights, and we got a sweet upgrade. So, like, it was only $75 extra dollars for this, like, big-ass, like, awesome suite. So it was really nice. Uh, and we actually ended up staying one extra night than we planned on just because it was such a, a nice suite and we got a great rate on it. So uh, if you ever want to come visit Vegas, like, early to mid-August, I guess is kind of end of August now, but, like, Mid-August is very often a time where you can get great discounts uh, at the local casinos here for your for your stay. Uh, two years ago when we were doing our house hunting trip, we also came right around this time of year, and we got a really awesome deal at the Aria. So uh, definitely, if you're coming out to Vegas ever, I recommend uh, trying to plan a trip mid-August. I know it's hot, 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 but uh, it's the best time of year for discounts. Uh, other than that, I'm ready to go, man. We've got Darlington this weekend. We've got the Brickyard 400 next weekend, back-to-back, just awesome races. Then we kick off, of course, the playoffs. Dude, it is so exciting. We got the Vegas race coming up in a few weeks, so I'll be going to that one. It's just an awesome time of year for NASCAR and uh, the playoff push. Yeah, it's real. It's going to be it's gonna be interesting to see who gets in and who does not. Yeah, this is uh, like the time of year for you, right? You're like you're just living the dream. And like, oh, by the way, NFL is about to start, too. And college oh, football yeah. is starting this weekend. So it's just it's a fantastic time of year. Oh, beautiful um, time of year. And we also, you know, I, I don't know about a lot of you guys, but I like tennis, too. And um, oh, you know, tennis, right. the, yeah. the U.S. Uh, Open. Opens right now, I think uh, Serena and Venus. Uh, yeah, you got the Williams yeah. sisters uh, facing yep. off. Yeah, it's a, it's a good time. Yeah, uh, it's awesome. Okay, Darlington, 500 miles. Uh, it is a Sunday night race. Uh, the Southern 500, as you mentioned, there are just two races left in the regular season. So, uh, we should expect to see some intense racing. Uh, but before we talk about that, let's look back a couple of weekends at Bristol. 
Kurt Busch locked in a playoff spot with a win in a wild race. It was one of the best of the year. Uh, Nick, talk about what we saw at Bristol and any DFS lessons we can take away from it. Yeah, so Bristol was it was just a super fun race. Um, you know, right off the bat, Kyle Busch he spun out. He just got got loose in front of the field after kind of a little bit of contact with Blaney, but. Uh, you know, I can't really say it was Blaney's fault or Kyle Busch's fault. It was just one of those things, and he got loose in front of the field. Took out a bunch of backmarker cars, which was kind of odd because the, the for whatever reason, the front guys got it, uh, around him, but some of the backmarkers plowed into him and into each other. So uh, it was a really odd race from the beginning. Kyle Busch got almost three laps down at one point. I think he didn't get three laps down, but he was really close to being three laps down. Came all the way back with a damaged car and was putting up, he put up the most fastest laps in the race with a car that was damaged basically the whole race other than like the first, you know, 10 laps or 12 laps or something. Uh, and put up the most fastest laps. He came all the way back from two laps down, got up to third. I think he got even up to maybe up to second at one point. Um, but, uh, no, he didn't get up to second. He was battling Truex for second and just got into Truex, uh, spun Truex around and Truex was interesting because I talked about him uh, as kind of a contrarian play that I really liked because he was slow in final practice, but really good in early practice, which was in the cooler part of the day. Uh, and so the race was at night. And so I thought that Truex would really come around as it went into night. And Truex was kind of junk all day. He actually went down a lap early, got back on the lead lap, came back, was pressing for the lead. And, and man, I was really high on Truex. I had like a 33, 35% exposure to Truex. And if he was only... 12% owned or something like that. And, uh, you know, he came back and almost got the lead, but Kyle Busch got into him. And then Kyle Busch ended up uh, getting contact on one of those restarts and, and fell back. Kyle Larson was a non-factor, which I thought was crazy. He started on the pole and he's, you know, Dart or Bristol's one of his best tracks. And it was really odd to see Kyle Larson struggle. So it was a very strange race. A lot of different leaders. Ultimately, Kurt Busch uh, picked up the win. And I was, I thought I was going to be overweight on Kurt Busch. He was starting ninth. And uh, I had like 25% Kurt Busch, but I think he only ended up around 20 or 21%, or I think he ended up around 20 or 21% owned. I thought it'd be a lot less. So wish I had a little more Kurt Busch, but the big DFS lesson learned from Bristol is I did play too much chalk. I played a lot of Kyle Larson. I played a lot of Kyle Busch because they were starting, you know, both inside the top three there, uh, three or four. I can't remember exactly what, what Kyle Busch was starting, but I know, uh, you know, Larson was on the pole there. I think Kyle Busch was second. So, um, I played too much of those guys, and, and neither of them ended up having the day we wanted. Uh, and, uh, you know, I kind of just didn't play the the predictive nature of Bristol is that it's a low predictability. You know, the, the model was very low predictability, and I went too chalky at Bristol. So uh, lesson learned there. You know, I went really chalky at Chicagoland where the model was like 0.75 and super low DNF rate. Uh, I, I didn't go quite like, um, you know, Chicagoland chalk here at Bristol, but I definitely went too chalky with the model only being around 0 0.45, 0 0.46, something like that. Should have played a, a little bit lower exposure to both Kyle Busch and Kyle Larson. Um, thought they were a little bit more safer plays, and, and they were. I mean, that's that's what I thought they were anyway. But, uh, yeah, things happen. Uh, so that was kind of the lesson learned from Bristol. Okay. Uh, let's talk about Darlington, a 1.366-mile egg-shaped track it is highly banked it is a steep track but among the steep uh the steep tracks it is unique turns one and two uh are different from three and four one and two have a much wider radius uh can you talk about the racing at darlington and what we should expect to see on sunday yeah dude darlington is such a fun track i mean if you watched uh, practice at all and you saw some of those in-car camera views uh it's just it's just a crazy race the drivers are riding around you know the outside of the track 
Um, but definitely one and two are different than three and four. You can carry a lot more speed in one and two because of the wider radius. Um, three and four are a little tighter radius. Uh, so you have to drive it a little bit differently. But um, that makes it really hard to set up the cars for both ends of the track because they're they're definitely different in the way they race. It's, it's not the same as Pocono, but we talk about Pocono being the tricky triangle with three very different turns. Uh, Darlington is similar. You got two different uh, essentially turns, 180 degree turns, not exactly 180s, but, you know, two uh, turns that are uh, very different from each other. So one and two, you can kind of think of it as one turn and three and four, you can kind of think is one turn. They're very different. Uh, another thing about Darlington it is pretty a little bit of an older surface. So tires do matter. Um, but, uh, you know, it's it's it can be tough to pass at Darlington. We do get a lot of what we see, you know, what we see as called a slide job where you have to dive under a guy and then get back up into the high line. Um, so we'll see some slide jobs. And, and so passing is definitely a premium at Darlington. If you can make passes at Darlington, uh, you're going to be in good shape. Uh, one other thing that, that very often happens at Darlington, you know, I mentioned the tires, I mentioned how passing is important, but, uh, pit road entry. We saw this at the end of practice on second practice earlier today, Bubba Wallace was trying to come into pit road when practice ended, right? Practice was over. Everything was done and he had to try to make his way onto pit road and he missed pit road. Uh, obviously he's, he's, you know, not raced in a cup car at Darlington before, but, uh, you know, I think, uh, Jimmy Johnson. So the second time Bubba came around the track, Jimmy Johnson almost ended up missing pit road. And Jimmy Johnson has been doing this forever. Uh, he's very good at Darlington. So, uh, that is something I think we can see as well will be some pit road penalties or even just flat out missing pit road. I do think it's a little bit easier at night, uh, to, to not miss pit road. The, the wall is very white, but in the day, the kind of the wall blends in a little bit with the track and in the sky uh, makes it a lot tougher. But, uh, yeah, just some some interesting little facts about Darlington there and the way it, it's just a, a very tough track. It's it's definitely a driver's track. And uh, as we'll talk about um, in the, you know, kind of in the model and stuff like that, it's definitely a driver's track. OK, we are recording this on Friday. Two practice sessions have already taken place. Qualifying is tomorrow and then the race is on Sunday. Talk about the content schedule for the Southern 500. Yeah, so as you mentioned, of course, qualifying tomorrow. Uh, when qualifying is over, I'm just going to get right to, to work on all the content. The article will be out within probably an hour, hour and a half as usual. Um, excuse me there. Uh, let's see. So qualifying is at 2 p.m. Eastern time. means it'll you know ballpark be over around 3 uh, and so three Eastern, so noon Pacific, and then I'm just going to get right to work on everything. We'll have the apps updated, the article out, hopefully within like 90 minutes uh, for the article, another 30 minutes for the apps. Uh, so within two hours, everything there being done. And then uh, later Saturday evening, I will record Rotoviz Live. Um, of course, taking your questions there on Twitter using the hashtag RV Live. And I plan on just knocking out everything on Saturday so that. Uh, Sunday morning really can just focus on lineups and uh, also on making sure that there's no um, kind of major things with drivers moving to the rear or anything like that. We almost had that situation at Bristol two weekends ago. Uh, Kyle Busch failed pre-race tech twice. And if he had failed pre-race tech the third time, he would have gone to the rear of the field, uh, but he would have stayed in his qualifying position for DraftKings purposes, but he would have started dead last. That would have killed all of his potential dominator uh, points, not all, but a very large chunk of his potential dominator points. We know obviously didn't really end up dominating a lot anyway, other than the fastest laps at Bristol, but uh, definitely killed those laps, led dominator points for him there for a large chunk of the race. So um, those are things you need to be aware of that could happen, uh, you know, at, at Darlington. It could have something like that. So it's just 
staying on top of the news. That's why I try to plan on getting everything done content-wise Saturday and then just tracking news uh, on Sunday and, and, of course, building lineups. Okay, so if anyone wants access to Nick's content, you can get a special discount to a NASCAR pass for $49 through our NASCAR podcast homepage, rotoviz.com slash NASCAR podcast. With that pass, you get unlimited access to all of Nick's premium NASCAR content and your subscription supports the pod. And then also, if you are subscribing to the Rotoviz NASCAR package, then you have access to a lot of great tools and data. With all of the research you are doing, you should play some NASCAR bets at mybookie.ag. They have a number of future bets and head-to-head props for each race. I bet the props at mybookie each week. You should check them out. The mybookie NASCAR futures and props, they are fun, and they are a great way to leverage your Rotoviz subscription and supplement your NASCAR DFS action. Join now and MyBookie will match your deposit with a 50% bonus. Use the promo code NASCAR to activate your offer. Um, NASCAR, such a sweet promo code, by the way, I just have to say. So visit MyBookie.ag today. You play, you win, and you get paid. Okay, back to the Southern 500. Um, Because both practice sessions took place before qualifying, what does that mean for using practice data, uh, given that some teams would uh, kind of do qualifying runs during practice? Yeah, so I think this is one of the most one of the most interesting weekends of the year in terms of practice data because uh, as I was building the model, guess what did not show up in the model? Practice data, not single lap, not ten lap, not combined lap, any of that stuff did not show up in the model at all. Was practice data. Um, now, I don't think it necessarily uh, is irrelevant, obviously, but. Uh, yeah, I think uh, at least, especially looking at single lap with those mock qualifying runs, they're absolutely going to be worthless, uh, especially given that practice data doesn't show up in the model. But even longer run stuff, um, you know, the practice sessions took place during the day. Uh, they they didn't you know necessarily take place at night. I guess the closest we get was uh, it took place at four o'clock Eastern until five o'clock Eastern was final practice. But the race starts at six o'clock Eastern, so you know two hours or at least the start of the race is an hour after the end of practice. So there will be temperature differences. So, uh, you know, obviously with, with Darlington building the lights and, and a lot of practice during the day in these past few years and, and races at night, uh, I think that's part of the reason why practice data doesn't mean so much. So I think it's really interesting uh, that, you know, that practice data doesn't mean as much. So definitely we can de-emphasize practice this weekend. We're, we'll talk a little bit, of course, about uh, how we should do that. But uh, yeah, I think... Certainly with single lap, just totally ignore it. And then with the longer run data, I think it's definitely something, not necessarily fade, but that we don't have to put as much emphasis on. Yes, as uh, Alan Iverson, just practice. Um, Do you think that that is something that's actually pretty exploitable in that most people pay attention to practice within the DFS industry, but for this race, it might not matter? Yeah, I definitely, I definitely think that's exploitable. And it actually was a little shocking to me because when I was watching practice, uh, you know, I was, I was looking at, at the practice times and who got the long run and who had average practice times over the whole session. And then I went and built the model. I always try to, to build the model after practice because if, if possible, at least especially on race like weekends like this, because that way I'm not, uh, biased into looking for certain things by what the data says. I just let myself do the observing make my own formulations of things I think, and then throw the model and be like, wow, that's really different. Uh, So, you know, I think 
my thoughts that I've developed watching practice were interesting because now I'm saying, well, this is something these DFS players are probably likely to develop as well, and that's actually a way to get away from them. So I agree. I think it is exploitable if people are overemphasizing practice data this weekend. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I, I, and that's why I liked formulating my own thoughts because I think other people watching practice or looking at practice data, uh, not knowing that it's very de-emphasized this weekend, um, may actually make some mistakes by playing certain drivers that were awesome in practice or, or not playing drivers that were terrible in practice, et cetera. So, um, yeah, I definitely think it's something exploitable this weekend. Okay. So, uh, I think it's like if my memory serves me correctly, I think it's fairly rare for you to have all of the practices before qualifying. Um, so outside of the restrictor plate races, is this the first time this year or how often has it happened this year that practice data just doesn't factor into the model? Yeah. I mean, outside of the plate races, which of course, you know, practice is, is pretty much irrelevant. Um, this is the first time we have not had either 10 lap average or single lap speed or, the combined, uh, you know, single lap speed from the different practice sessions, some kind of practice metric showing up in my model. So uh, definitely a rarity. Um, and, uh, you know, that that's taking into account. I did two different models. I took into account all of the the Gen 6 era for Darlington races. So from 2013 on. And I just looked at 15, 16 and 17, which is when they started cutting the downforce off of these cars a lot more. Both cases, practice data did not show up as significant in the model. Uh, it um, when I built the top 30 models, it didn't show up in neither none of those practice metrics showed up in any of the top 30 models uh, using both different data sets there. So um, definitely, definitely something I think um, you know I, I I definitely think it's it's a really unique situation. Okay, uh, so with practice before qualifying and it's uh, daytime versus a night race. I'm assuming uh, that DFS players should completely ignore practice data this week. Um, I basically already asked that question, but yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, like basically just ignore it or I I wouldn't say completely ignore it. Um, And and the reason is this, the the model has a lot of different factors, right? So uh, there's other factors that go into the model. And what I found is practice data does correlate strongly with some of these factors. But what I think it is, is because these other factors are stronger predictors, you basically model out the practice data itself. So these pr- the practice data essentially essentially proxies for, for just the other data that's much stronger. So I don't think you can completely ignore practice data. And I think just that you know these other factors are going to be much stronger indicators of of performance, and that's why they're the ones showing up in the model. And practice data is not. If uh, if a driver is just absolutely totally junk or absolutely totally in love with their car i'm still going to kind of mentally note that and uh probably get a little more exposure to them but i definitely don't think i might be as high as the industry just because i do want to get away a little bit from some of the practice times okay so you mentioned that practice is correlated with other factors other data uh what are the other factors that are uh flashing in the model yeah, so um, at least obviously for finishing position, uh, really interesting model. The number one factor in both of the different uh, data sets I looked at is actually um, track quality pass percentage. So what is your quality pass percentage in past Darlington races? And that shows up in 
almost all of the top 30 models, not all of them, but most of the top 30 models and definitely all of the top uh, 12 models there. So uh, track quality, pass percentage. And like I said, passing at Darlington is a premium. If you can get that side job, if you can uh, find ways around the other car, uh, it is really a driver's track. And that's why it's not track type, not steep track quality pass percentage. I think one of the misnomers about steep tracks is some drivers are great steep track racers. Well, yes, that's true. But that usually means the other three tracks, uh, the other three steep tracks or, or um, you know, Homestead, Dover and uh, Bristol there. But uh, at, at Darlington, it's track quality pass percentage. You could also use track driver rating. They're very highly correlated with each other. But track quality pass percentage is the one that really dominates the model. Then the other factors that uh, show up are, are your recent quality pass percentage on, you know, just all the tracks this year uh, or at least, uh, you know, the past half season or something like that. And then uh, your fastest laps this past half season as well. So uh, the model, I, I also put in year to date, but uh, the model actually just picked up the past half season. So if you could you know, chop it down to like 15 races or something like that, uh, that actually shows more significant than uh, we've had. Uh, what is it? We've had 24 races this year. This will be the 25th race. Um, so instead of using all 24 races, you can use about 15 of those races. Um, you know, anywhere from 12 to 18 is fine, but I, the model prefers about 15 races of of um, past data with, with finishing position uh, or quality pass percentage, and then um, or, or driver rating. Those three really highly correlate, and then fastest laps as well in those past past 15 races. So. How good have you been in the past 15 races, essentially? Um, it doesn't really matter which of those metrics you use. Just use the fastest laps in one of the indicators of finishing position, whether it's driver rate and quality pass percentage or finishing position itself, and then track quality pass percentage. That's really it. That's all that goes into the model. And, you know, I, I think it sounds like such a simple model, but with Darlington, it really makes sense. How is your car this year? How have you been this year? Uh, or especially recently? And then how good are you at Darlington? Uh, that really does make a lot of sense, uh, especially we knowing that practice data doesn't make sense. Starting position um, also doesn't factor in. So, uh, you know, the driver's going to be good at, at passing at Darlington uh, and have been good this year. Kind of also just correlate strongly with those that will probably be good in practice now, um, especially over longer speeds, uh, longer runs, I should say. One of the other things – the other reasons we don't get longer run data at Darlington being as significant is because the track really transitions, uh, very much transitions. If you look at practice speeds in the opening practice session um, for, for 10 lap average, all the guys who made their runs earliest in the opening practice session made their long runs were at the top of the charts. Then Jamie McMurray blew an engine. There was a long track cleanup. The, the track heated up. And all those guys who made their long run after Jamie McMurray blew his engine were far, far, far slower. I mean, like four miles an hour slower uh, over 10 lap average. Then you go into the even or to the second practice session, the final practice session. And again, all the top guys made their fastest lap, uh, 10 lap runs early in the session until I think you get around to like Jimmy Johnson, who was somewhere in the mid teens, uh, who made his run a lot later. So. Uh, that's another reason why long run data isn't going to be as reliable. So the track is really going to change going into the evening. And so that's why it's such a driver's track. If you're good at Darlington, you know, you'll be able to, you know, just drive the track itself. And that's why I think these, these statistics end up showing up. Okay. How predictive is the model? Uh, models actually, strangely enough, it's pretty predictive. Um, at, you know, I think, uh, if we, kind of look at all the tracks this year it's right in line with the others around 0.665 uh sorry 0.65 not 665 0.65 uh 
which is a lot of kind of the more predictive mile and a half ovals. So um, it's strangely for the drivers that do end up finishing the race, it's pretty predictive, even though uh, I guess we'll talk about the incident rate here, but the incident incident rate is, is actually pretty high. That's uh that seems kind of counterintuitive that a a track with a high incident rate has a uh, predictive model, right? I mean that those those two things normally don't go together, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, and that's one of the things I was trying to wrap my head around. So that incident rate at Darlington, uh, if we go back to um you know 2014, let's say, then the incident rate is around 0.245. But if we cut out 2014 because you know they really started trimming the downforce in 2015, the incident rate is just over 20%. That's still pretty high though. I mean, 40 cars in the race, you're gonna expect eight cars on average ballpark, give or take a little bit to have incidents. Uh, so uh, yeah, I mean, it's a pretty high incident rate. And what I think it is, is just things happen at Darlington. Um, very often they happen in the back markers though. So uh, I think one of the things that we can take away there is, is, is very often, like I said, they do happen in the back markers and that uh, those guys don't really get, you know, thrown into the mix there in terms of like getting up high in the finishing position or anything like that. So you're not really affecting the predictiveness of the finishers. Now, obviously we'll have some higher finishers who have incidents as well. Um, but those things tend to be more like crashes than, uh, and, and don't necessarily shake up the field a ton, I guess, but, uh, it really is counterintuitive. I'm kind of struggling to wrap my head around why that is. Uh, but it's not like this is like Chicagoland, which is like 0.75, or some of the other tracks like Phoenix, which is around 0.7. It's still around 0.65, so not necessarily the highest, but it does fall in line with some of the mile and a half in terms of predictability. Uh, but it is kind of interesting that it does have a high incident rate in predictability. Uh, as for how you attack that in GPPs, um, you know, I, I, I think I'm less worried about the incident rate. You can't really predict incidences. Uh, but the fact that you can, you know, you do have a pretty predictive model here and it's not relying on practice data. That's where I'm going to be, you know, tailoring my strategy to this weekend is just trying to uh, figure out what the field is going to do based off practice data and then avoiding that. So, um, not obviously not completely avoiding it. If driver looks good in practice, you would think he probably does have a good car, but maybe not as good a car relative to the field as you would think because he's maybe a worse uh, driver at Darlington, something like that. So, um, definitely just, uh, I'm going to play them I'm, because of what happened at Bristol where I didn't, you know, I was too predictive at a track that was 0.45. What I want to do here at Darlington is really follow the model. Uh, you know, it worked at Chicago land. It worked at Watkins Glen almost where I, I, you know, I almost won a couple of the different large GPPs at Watkins Glen until, you know, just an incident happened essentially, uh, or, or whatever race it was after Watkins Glen, it was some, some mile and a half oval, I think, but, uh, I also did well at Watkins Glen. So, um, yeah, I think it's just, it's just one of those things where I really want to make sure I'm paying attention to the model and what goes into the model this weekend. Okay. Well, um, this is, it's interesting. So we have a predictive model, but we also have a track with a high incident rate. Um, and it's hard to predict which drivers won't, uh, won't finish the race. So how are you approaching GPPs? Yeah, I mean, and like I said, it's just it's mostly just looking at the model. Um, if there, I don't think there will be a huge uh, other than the people who listen to this podcast and me, you know, tweeting about it or or writing it, writing it in my article, things like that. I don't think there will necessarily be a huge uh, push of like fading practice times. So uh, I really do think it's it's about figuring out 
where the model is different from practice times and exploiting those spots. Uh, you, like I said, you can't predict um, who's going to have incidents. Usually it comes from back markers. So maybe you play more of a balanced lineup. Uh, and as we'll talk about with the dominators, I think uh, a balanced lineup can really make a lot of sense this weekend. Obviously you're going to need dominators. And if it's a high priced driver, then you're going to have a high priced driver dominating. But I do think a balanced lineup will be an interesting uh, proposition this weekend. Okay. Let's talk about dominators. 367 laps, uh, so dominators are going to be critical to winning a GPP. How many dominators do you think we are likely to see or do we normally see at Darlington? Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely varies like most Darlington races do uh, in terms of dominators. Last year, there were three major dominators. Kyle Larson led uh, 33.9%, Danny Hamlin 33.8%, and Trix 207 They both had at least uh, 12% fastest laps. And all three put up at least 72 DraftKings points. If that happens, you're going to have three dominators in the winning lineup, especially when you get drivers like last year, like Ty Dillon, uh, started 20 finish, 25th, finished 13th. You know, he was going to be in the lower price range there. You had Ryan Newman, who put up 47.5 DraftKings points. Austin Dillon, 51 DraftKings points. Um, Kurt Busch was in that, probably that mid-8K range last year. So you definitely had a three-dominator lineup feasible in winning, uh, you know, Darlington GPPs last year. Then you go back the year before that, it really was Kevin Harvick as the main dominator. Uh, and then Keselowski and Larson were kind of minor dominators uh, with with 12, little both around 12.5% laps led. Uh, Larson, 7.5% fastest laps. Keselowski, 11% fastest laps. So again, more likely a three dominator race there. And, and you also, you know, all three drivers put up at least 60 DraftKings points. Um, and then you also had drivers, you know, like, Case Kane again, Newman again, popping up as Chris Busher popping up as plays that were feasible. So I think we're leaning towards three dominators this weekend. But problem is, you usually don't know who that third dominator is going to be. Um, but uh, yeah, and you go back, you go back th two years ago. Um, so not last year, two, oh, sorry, three years ago. Uh, again, three dominators, Keselowski, Hamlin, and Harvick. And you see a lot of the same names there as well. But uh, that race also, one thing I thought was sneaky was Kurt Busch. Uh, he only led 1.9% of laps led, but he did have 13.4% fastest laps. So uh, there, you know, fastest laps also um, play an important role. And if Kurt Busch was in that mid 8K price range, or, you know, he that, that was 13.4% fastest laps. That's a lot. I mean, you're talking about over 40 fastest laps. That's 20 points there. Kurt Busch ended up with, I mean, he started second and finished sixth. So you'd think, well, he got the negative place differential, but he still had 60.25 DraftKings points because of all those fastest laps. So fastest laps will play a role at uh, at Darlington as well. So I usually think we're looking at at three dominators. And if we look at their starting positions, you know, uh, 2015, it was one, three, and six. If we go over to uh, 2016, their starting position for the Dominators was uh, 1, 2, and then Kyle Larson started 16. And then we go to 2017. Starting position for the for the top Dominators was 4, 9, and 2. So they usually come from pretty far forward. Kyle Larson, you know, in 2016 being the exception. But other than that, they were basically all inside the top 10 uh, in starting positions. That's really where you're choosing your Dominators from, for the most part, at Darlington. But Things can happen at Darlington with the high incident rate and getting some cautions and some strategy and things like that. Okay, what is the data that you are using to identify the drivers likely to dominate this weekend? 
Yeah, I think it's I think it's super interesting this weekend in terms of uh, the data that we're using because very often laps led and fastest laps they they strongly correlate and and the data that goes into them strongly correlates at Darlington a little bit less of that um, there so there's going to be different factors that go into laps led than go into uh, fastest laps so with laps led a lot of what ends up showing up is your year-to-date performance, year-to-date finishing position, year-to-date fastest laps. Also, of course, your starting position. And then uh, your your Darlington um, past kind of uh, finishing position or, or even steep track finishing position, which is I think is weird that it shows up, but I prefer to use um, the Darlington past you know, finishing position. So basically, how have you done this year in terms of finishing and, and dominating uh, where you start and then how you've done at Darlington? But uh, with fastest laps, it's really different. There's a lot of factors that show up in the model, including final practice. So that's one spot where maybe um, you can use a little bit to, to infer fastest laps. So that would be your um, single lap speed uh, in final practice, uh, which kind of is weird because you get some qualifying laps in final practice. You know, obviously Casey Kane, he was up there in final practice, but he made some qualifying laps, but a lot of drivers didn't. So uh, you can mostly use single lap speed in final practice. The indicators that are much stronger uh, are a lot of the track type, or sorry, a lot of the track specific statistics. So Darlington pass laps led, Darlington pass driver rating, Darlington pass quality pass percentage, and then other uh, things like gear to date finishing and gear to date fastest laps so you're still using a lot of the year-to-date stuff like you got with um with the laps led but you're pulling a whole lot more track specific stuff for fastest laps and so you're going to see a lot of the same name drivers putting up fastest laps year after year after year but there is some noise there um there you know obviously we we saw last year greg galding had uh 2.7 percent of the total laps run fastest laps and actually he only ran 202 of the 367 laps so of the laps he ran he had a 4.9%, uh, almost 5% fastest lap rate. And that's because if you get off sequence and you get those fresh tires with Darlington, definitely having uh, you know some, some tire wear there that you can, you can get different drivers that put up fastest laps. So uh, it does spread out, but oddly enough, um, you know, I, I think uh, fastest laps are going to be a key this weekend. Okay. Uh, you mentioned the model differences between fastest laps and laps led. How are you balancing the two sets of possible dominator points? So, like I said, I think we see a lot of the big names um, dominating. You know, we talked about Larson a couple times, Hamlin a couple times, Keselowski, uh, I think a couple times, Harvick in there. Uh, So you're going to get the big names dominating. Then I think from there we want to – so whichever big names you think will dominate, you definitely want to get in your lineups. But from there, I think it's really important to focus on fastest laps. Somebody like Kurt Busch, who has a really high fastest lap percentage at Darlington over the years, you know, 8.9% from 2015 to 2017 in completed races is actually the second most behind uh, only Kevin Harvick. Then you've got Brad Kozlowski at 8.5, uh, Larson Truex, Hamlin at 7.8. And there was just a huge drop-off after that. It's Logano, Chase Elliott, uh, et cetera. So um, I think you really want to focus on on drivers like Kurt Busch, who's in that mid-8K range, 
but could put up a lot of fastest laps. Uh, I think, you know, if you get a driver in that 8K range who puts up 40 fastest laps and gets 60 points like Kurt Busch did a couple of years ago, uh, you're going to be in great shape there. So really focus on those drivers that you think can pull some fastest laps. Um, does that make Brad Keselowski a sneaky play this weekend? I'm not sure. But uh, I definitely think, uh, depending obviously on where he qualifies and, and, and other things, I might want to try to sneak in Keselowski. But even if you go a little bit further down the list, I think there's some names that uh, you might be able to pull. Like uh, occasionally Casey Kane or Ryan Newman have, have put up some fastest laps, especially in the past. But, uh, you know, David Reagan snuck in there once with tires. Uh, but then there's names that I think also don't stand out, like Kyle Busch. He's only led in the past three years 0.9% laps led and point or 2.5% fastest laps. That's three times fewer fastest laps than Denny Hamlin, Truex, Larson, Keselowski, Kurt Busch, and Kevin Harvick. Uh, even if you go back to like 2013 and 2014 uh, and pull up Kyle Busch, he did have the second most between 13 and 14, um, but that was still far behind Kevin Harvick. So uh, and those were when those cars had a lot more downforce. And then before that, you get into the you know the previous car generation. So um, I do think it's possible to to fade Kyle Busch if you don't think he's going to be a laps led type of guy here, uh, which he hasn't shown to be the past three years. But uh, I will say, of course, that track past track laps led aren't an indication of future tracks lap led as we talk about. Um, so I do think you know Kyle Busch still is in the dominator mix, especially. So sound odd, but especially given his practice times and how he was the fastest over 10 and 15 laps in final practice. But uh, I don't think it's a slam dunk with Kyle Busch. So if other people are going to be all over Kyle Busch, I'll probably be underweight on him, something like that. Okay, what drivers are you eyeing early in the week based off of the model data? Yeah, so as far as dominator performances, I definitely think Kevin Harvick is up there. He has the best driver rating at Darlington in the lower downforce Gen 6 era. Uh, also the most laps led, the most fastest laps. He was right up there in practice time. So I, I think he's a guy we can use, and not just because of practice times, but because of also his track history. Um, definitely Denny Hamlin uh, with, the, with the dominator performance as well. I will say that Denny Hamlin is pretty priced up, so he's you know, a guy who could be an interesting fade as well. I've mentioned Kurt Busch. Uh, but where I want to kind of dive in is a little bit further down in the price point. You look at Ryan Newman uh, and Jamie McMurray. They both have an 84 driver rating over the past three Darlington races uh, where you know they haven't had incidents. And um, especially Jamie McMurray, a 55% quality pass percentage. Ryan Newman, 41.5% quality pass percentage. That's better than some other drivers. You know, Ryan Blaney only has a 12.5% quality pass percentage, et cetera. Another name that I think will kind of be off the radar this weekend is Eric Almarola. He's priced $8,100. And I love that price for a guy in top tier equipment who's led some laps this year and had chances to win this year. Uh, but the thing I love about him is his past Darlington performance as well. You look at his quality pass percentage, 29.2. That doesn't like sound like amazing, but he was also in much inferior equipment in those years. You look at his driver rating, 73.3. Uh, again, an inferior driver rating. So I think Almirola is a guy who could surprise this weekend. That's actually ahead of teammate Clint Boyer, who has a you know 60.6 driver rating and a quality pass percentage of three over the past three years. Uh, so you know in that uh, you know there was one year where Boyer was in inferior equipment, but the other two years he's been in pretty good equipment. Um, you know I think I think Eric Almirola is a guy that's really poised to be sneaky this weekend. I'm gonna probably have a lot of him this weekend. Other names further down the list in price point, uh, Chris Busher has a 65.3 driver rating. 
uh, lower quality pass percentage. Also, Ty Dillon, uh, 75.7 driver rating and 32.9 quality pass percentage in his lone Darlington Cup start. But uh, he hasn't been as successful in the lower series, so I'm a little unsure with with Ty Dillon. And then uh, one other name I think could be interesting is Bubba Wallace, just from his uh, experience in the lower series there. So I think those three names will be kind of my cheaper tier that I look at, Ty Dillon, Chris Buescher, and Bubba Wallace. Okay, any drivers you're looking to fade based on the model? Yeah, I think Ryan Blaney is a, a name I really want to fade, especially when you look at those track uh, practice times. And he was way up there in the 10 lap and the 15 lap. Uh, I will definitely have some exposure to him because of those practice times, but it's not going to be anywhere near what the field would have. Uh, also, of course, we're waiting on qualifying, so there are usual caveats. But like, if he's in a qualifying position where he's playable, um, I'll probably be underweight relative to the field. I would definitely still have some exposure, uh, but uh, – Definitely a guy with that only 12.5% quality pass percentage, a guy I might want to fade. Uh, same with Clint Boyer, um, somebody I might want to fade. Clint Boyer wasn't up there in practice time, so he'll probably be even lower owned. And this is this is an odd spot where I might actually you know consider going over on Boyer just because one of those data points includes just absolutely horrible equipment. Um, but uh, it kind of depends where I think the industry is going with Boyer on how I'll attack him. But definitely... Uh, relative to their to their prices, I, I do like Boyer's price at 8,900 as well. And early in the week, I was like, man, if he's 8,900 and gets a good qualifying position, I'll be all over him. And then I started to look at you know how track history is so important. Now I'm less likely on him, but then you see his practice times and if people are weighing track history. So it's one of those things. I'm pretty fluid on Boyer. Don't love his situation, but if he's gonna be really low owned, then I probably will go a little heavier. Not a lot, but a little heavier than the field uh one other driver to avoid ricky stenhouse jr 58.9 driver rating um his quality pass percentage a little bit better 19.8 but he really hasn't been able to put together finishes here as well and finishing position does show up in the model uh like i said you know track finishing position uh or year-to-date finishing position of both shown up in the model so ricky stenhouse jr another driver i'm probably looking to avoid okay nick final thoughts um, yeah, I think my final thoughts are just uh, really pay attention to the model inputs. Uh, you know, we, we've talked about fading practice and we've talked about how fastest laps are important. Really, really focus on, um, you know, drivers that can can put up good uh, stats relative to their salary, which is why I, I still think I'm considering Clint Boyer, because if he was up in the 9K range, mid 9K range, like he's been for the past few races, I probably would just totally ignore him. But right here at, at 8,900, he's still playable, uh, possibly, and kind of depending, like I said, on what the field does. Uh, so, yeah, I think uh, really just pay attention to the model, what goes into the model, uh, and uh, don't get too involved in, in practice time discussion this weekend. Okay. Nick, fantastic show. Not just a good show or good stuff, but a fantastic show. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited, man. Darlington is, is – we got back-to-back crown jewel races here with Darlington and then the Brickyards. So uh, just like you said, like you said at the top of the show, exciting time of year. Yeah, that is going to do it for this very exciting NASCAR edition of On the Daily. For Nick Giffen on Twitter at Rotodoc, I'm Matt Friedman, Matt at the Oracle. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for listening to On the Daily, the Rotoviz Daily Fantasy Sports Podcast, powered by Rotoviz Radio. And special thanks to Randy E. Aguabo for the introduction. Please review the podcast on iTunes under the established Rotoviz Radio feed. Contact us via email on the daily DFS at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at on the daily DFS.
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.